welcome to the industry.fashions in conversation podcast where we invite you to tune in to the stories of some of fashion's most inspirational leaders from the history of their careers to their current priorities for their businesses and advice for their fellow fashion friends these conversations cover it all the in conversation series is staged in proud partnership with Klarna. Alison Lloyd founded Ali Capolino in 1980 and was one of the first contemporary British designers to really crack the Japanese market in the early 90s. She's had a busy year this year, with a collaboration with Barbara on jackets and bags and a pop-up space in Selfridges with her new packable bag collection. Alison talks us through her colourful career in fashion and all her latest projects. Hi Ali, thanks for joining us on our podcast today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So to kick things off, the very start, when and where did you study fashion and textiles and what was your first job? So I studied, I did a foundation year in York, which was near where I lived. And then um, I tried to get into Kingston because that was the place I'd heard of, um, but I didn't get in. And then I went to Manchester because I thought that might be good, but it wasn't. And I transferred to Middlesex. So then I, I was very happy at Middlesex. It was brilliant. I had met my boyfriend, Jono, already. So we were sort of pretending we didn't know each other at college. Um, and then we were both offered jobs in the same place as well, which um, is kind of a miracle to get a job straight from college, I think, in some ways. Where was that? That was at a place called Courtauld Central Design which was one of the big manufacturers. There were, I think there were two manufacturers for Marks and Spencers, or the two biggest anyway. They were the, I think maybe they were the second one. And so basically what they did was um, make samples that would feed Marks and Spencers, feed their production. They had big production in the UK still. That was in about 1978 or nine. Um, anyway, I think I stayed maybe three or four months. I just did not get on with the um, the corporate sort of scene that was the, that was there, which was basically dump on people who were younger than you or newer than you. It, it was sort of inbuilt system, which wasn't very nice. And um, I started to make bits of jewellery and things at home. I did learn how to sew there though, because because I was so junior, my my designs didn't get through to Marks and Spencer's levels very often. So in order to get that my samples made, I went and sewed them myself, and learned how to use the sewing machines and whatnot, which was which was a step up from college sewing. So uh, anyway, I started making bits of jewellery and hats out of paper and sort of leftover bits and things. It was all. Um, hands-on sort of fiddling about knitting needles cellulose you know film cellulose um and gradually i sort of built up there there was quite a thing for um i don't suppose you remember it but uh, there was a shop called detail in covent garden when covent garden just got cleared out from you know the flower market moved away and everything and it was a sort of it was a desert, but some of the sort of post-punk places moved in there. And um, so there was a sort of fashion for jewellery that was primary colours, wires, plastics, it, the sort of a modernism thing 
came out of that. And I was doing some of that, and I left the other job because it was unbearable and gradually started making a sort of a collection and selling it. And, um, um, And then it turned into a business a bit by mistake I we had no training at college about what you know what an invoice was or any of that sort of thing it was purely sort of open open brain thinking and you know punk was kind of the most exciting thing that had just happened and do your thing was as as big as possible it was Ali Capol- the launch of Ali Capolino the brand that really kind of brought you to mm. the fore when what year would that have been well, that developed into Ali Capolino, and the reason was that we were doing this jewellery and we wanted to sort of find a bigger marketplace, I suppose. And there was a thing called the Individual Clothes Show, which was a group of about um, maybe 10 different designers. Um, don't know how many of them are remembered anymore, but some of them were quite good. A lot of knitwear. Knitwear was very big at that time. Hand knitting was huge in the States. British, lots of British brands that did hand knitting. So they had a little fashion show, a catwalk show, and we were only doing bracelets and earrings and things. So it sort of spurred us to do, um, we did five pieces of clothing um, and it was 19, it was, it sort of celebrated the 1980 um, Olympics. It was a sort of print with Olympic runners and maps of Moscow and things on it. Um, And uh, we got an order from Lucille Lewin at Whistles, who had one little shop on George Street at that time. I think it was £300 worth of business, and we thought, oh, let's go on holiday. We didn't think, how, how's £300 going to sustain us for the, uh, for the rest of the six months or something? Anyway, I don't know, somehow we sort of grew, grew and grew and grew quite quickly at the beginning, which was not difficult from nothing. Um and then um, that took us to, we started to do some fashion shows. We introduced menswear. And then during the 80s, we 84, I think, was the first first time we went to Italy. Um, and we we sort of exploded there in a way um, on, on the back of sheepskin jackets. So our look was very British at that time. Um, sort of inspired by probably not not such different inspiration sometimes, but as a sort of um, a traditional knowledge feeding a more modern aesthetic, possibly. Um, so, where did the Ali, Ali Capolino name come from? Um, that came from a so when before we made the business, um, I was doing some sort of hats which were window dressing for the. the these shops called L Shops, which was part of the Fiorucci group. And they wanted some window dressing. So we made these little sort of like coolie hats things out of cardboard. And um, I think we also made some dresses for her, actually. Can't I think. It was, um, it was um, Maureen from Egg who was buying for it at that time. And um, she... So we didn't have a label, and we thought we needed a name to stick inside. So we made a little paper label and stuck it in, and we thought Capolino meant a little hat, and it's spelt wrong, so it doesn't mean a little hat. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what year would that have been? So that that was 1979-1980, because when we did the Moscow Olympics, we were then called Ali Capolino. Yeah. And we meant to change it, but um, it, it sort of it got too far down the line and 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 then you know but it was quite funny because when we went to Italy people would walk past we had a stand opposite Catherine Hamlet who was huge at the time and she sort of it was um, an amazing thing to watch because she um she had a big sort of booth she papered over all the windows and put a guard outside the door and um and it it just caused lines of people to turn up immediately um, whatever was inside um, right. well I'm sure what was inside was hot because I remember it being stolen one year on the way to the show oh. anyway um, so in Italy we sort of stole, were selling a kind of steel on glaze type of thing a lot of British wools and tweeds and things um, quite a few sort of we did um, we had this British um, cotton that we used from Thomas Mason, um, very sort of Lancashire, sort of broadcloth um, fabrics. We did trousers and sort of windcheater jackets, and they were very nice. I, I don't know where any of those windcheater jackets have gone to. Love one of those. Um, and then we started to do sheepskin, and that just really took off. And we were so we were making those in Somerset. British British lambskin sort of things, but um, I, I don't know if we were the expert, but for somehow for some reason we sort of were the ones selling it at that time. Yeah. So when did it develop into what came next in terms of product? Um, I think men's maybe came. Can't remember exactly. Maybe about eighty six or something. Um, and we did, and then. And I think we'd established the men's for a little while and then we were approached by um, a guy called GCO Company from Japan who, who was backed by Itochu and he wanted to license us. And he also wanted, he, I think he already was licensing Catherine Hamlet in Japan and she was very successful there. And he had this idea to have a sort of a trio of, I think he was trying to get Vivian Westwood as well, but he never did. Um, and so we started to go to Japan three or four times a year. Opened up several shops there, but it, it meant doing lots of extra collections and variations on themes. And um, he then supported us to open the shop in Wardour Street that we had. That was the first UK store. Yes, and that was a sort of pioneering position. Do you, you, you know where it was? Up, almost opposite the end of Old Compton Street on Wardour Street, next to right. I think the Intrepid Fox is gone, but that was our neighbour. Anyway, it's a Pret-a-Manger now. There were no fashion shops at all in Soho at that time, but there were quite a lot of actors because actors all had their agents in Soho. So they they tended to be our customers. And we were there about seven years or something, and then the rents went sky high and we we didn't make enough to to be able to stay and also Pret-a-Manger wanted wanted our space <laughs> right so what year would that have been 90 maybe in the around, around the early 90s yeah I think it must have been early 90s yeah yeah 
So that was when you were kind of cracking the Japanese market as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So how did it go on from there and and and, and lead into liquidation in '98? So the, the business was me and my partner, um, and we were life partners too. So um, I think as the sort of end of the '80s happened, I I started to become more of the, the designer on my own, I suppose. And he became more the business side of it because we had sort of been quite a team on the design side of it. And um, I don't know, the 90s just seemed to herald in a, a lot of white and modernism thing, thinking and whatever. And there were a lot of, there's quite a lot of exciting stuff going on, like the sort of McQueen and um, Hussein, Shalaya and... and I sort of really was quite keen on that more experimental fabrics. I was really interested in fabrics. So I sort of moved things to a a more, a less traditional things and more simple construction, more revealed construction, I suppose. And, um, and um, that's sort of how that went. Um, but we didn't really agree about what, how that was. And gradually, I think we just disagreed about what we did. And that, that didn't really help the business. Reborn in 2000? Yeah. By mistake. By mistake. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. Yeah, I, I, I still had some some work in Japan, sort of some consultancy work, but they got very nervous about about you know um, not not having a business in the UK, sort of understandably, and so they wanted to end that. And then um, I I I I got a really nice deal to design the guides and brownie uniforms, which hadn't been done for a while. So that was a bit of income, and um, then I was offered a, a job with um, another consultancy job with British Home Stores, which was to do a sort of men's, women's, and children's whole collection. And I started on that, didn't keep me that busy, and it was quite well paid. And then Philip Green bought the business and said, well, we don't need designers. So I was paid off and didn't really have anything to do. I was, I'd sort of bought myself a new house flat and I was hanging out the window thinking well, what, what to do, what to do. And I had some leather and I sort of got it out on the kitchen table and used my knowledge of clothing to make some very simple little bags. And I think I made about half a dozen and and then thought, well, maybe I'll just show them to some of the customers that I know. So I showed them around, and it wasn't a huge commitment to these people, so it got off the ground again quite quickly. And then, again, it got bought in Japan in quite a big way. Um, so it, um, it grew quite suddenly in the first couple of years. And, and then it sort of retracted I'd sort of moved into a new house and, and my son had gone to university I was all on my own sort of not knowing what to do with myself again um, but then um, I 
got uh, the first thing with um, the Tate. So I've been working with the Tate since 2004, I think. Um, and they were keen to, to do something with Ali Capolino. So we made this little range for them, which continued almost unchanged for quite a long time, actually. Um, and then after that, we got some work with Apple, which we we developed a bag over about a year that that they would be happy with. So it looked very different to what was around for in the way of um, computer bags at the time. If you wanted to buy a computer bag at that time, you would go to Tottenham, um, Tottenham Court Road or a computer shop, and there was no nobody would ever think about it in a, a fashion sense. And so we made bags for Apple that were more casual than a computer bag at that time would have looked. And that they immediately were really successful. So, And the people that were buying them were largely um, sort of dudes that hung out in cyber cafes because, you know, you didn't get internet everywhere. Now it's time to hear a bit more about our partners, Klarna. Klarna let customers pay up to 30 days later or in three installments at thousands of online stores such as ASOS, River Island, Michael Kors, Made.com and many more. Find out more at Klarna.com. So is it just the one store in short? It's just the one now, yeah. I, I can't quite decide about where the where the best route to shops is at the moment. But through the pandemic, I'd say it's to keep it local, actually. And that that's to me, that's the, the right feeling for Ali Capolino. And is it, uh, is it solely bags you do at the moment? Um, well, we've got, with the packable collection that we've got at the moment, there's a, a, a parker in there. Um, we do knitwear. We do a few hats. And then the barber stuff was... Um, a great um a great, well I, I love coats actually and jackets so that was a, a real pleasure doing that so they're both very recent aren't they the barber collaboration both, and yeah the, both this season yeah and the launch of the packable collection with a pop-up space at selfridges yep yep that's actually closed now but that was that was a, a nice little nice little exposure how long did that run for uh, just under a month. I think we were a bit late getting in there. <laughs> it was supposed to be a month. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's it, the the actual, because that's the, that's the first time we've done anything like that. Um, I mean, that collection. So it was quite new for the factory. And um, there, there has been some teething problems, but we're sort of, we're on to the second iteration of it now. It's coming out soon. So I guess your, I mean, your unique selling point was the the uh, more simplistic leather bags, wasn't it? So this is kind of like a new direction. It is, yeah. I mean, I think simplistic is is our sort of handwriting. I I I don't know. I I just love mater- the materials. So that that's been one big issue with COVID is not being able to go to trade fairs so much and things like that. I'd say we've managed. Um, I think leather has a bit more resistance now as well. 
quite largely in, amongst our customers as well. We've we've got a sort of quite socially conscious customer. So it was uh, 2019 when you merged with Authentic Bespoke Group, yeah, um, yeah. joining other brands such as JR Tusting, um, Leather Goods and Bud Shirt Makers. How did that merger come about and why did you decide to take that route? Well, I was looking for investment um, because um, I, I needed to sort of, I needed more support really. Um, they were looking for a creative director and another spoke to their wheel so that sort of fitted the bill so who are they and when were they founded who's behind it? oh they're not it's not that old it's um um, maybe a couple of years i think um there's um stephen murphy is the chairman he's he um is a a german street savile well he's originally from investment banking but he um had Huntsman, and sold it without the shirt part of it. He kept the shirt part of it, um, and um, so Bud was inherited like that. That's his baby, I think. Um, Tusting, they, they, I think they they wanted people who had a sort of well authenticness to them, which I think they've got. Um, bespoke Ali Capolino is less bespoke <laughs> the other two are a bit more bespoke As group creative director do you now oversee the creative process across all the other brands as well as Ali Capolino? Well um, parts of it yeah I mean there just isn't time to do the whole thing um, but I've done some shirt designs for women um, for Bud and um I, I'm, I think I, I'm, I'm a bit more forward-thinking design-wise than, than they would like to go. I, I pushed them a bit too hard a couple of times. Um, and um, testing, yeah, we're, we're sort of doing all their design creative stuff in, in our studio. And what about the, uh, the Margent Farm projects? You, you, uh... Uh, yeah, so Margent Farm... Um, I had a message on Instagram, when, this is when we had the shop in Portobello, from somebody who said, your shop reminds me of Venice. And I thought, oh, Venice, I've never been to Venice. How does that? I, so I went back and said, do, do I know you? Anyway, this girl, Fonda, said, no, I'm from Margent Farm. I meant Venice, B, Venice, California. I thought I was even more out of my depth there. <laughs> anyway, we struck up a bit of a conversation and found out what Margent Farm was, and we got on very well, and still do. And um, so we had a first of all, we had a little pop up in um, Marylebone. Actually, um, must have been twenty Christmas nineteen, maybe or 20, can't remember which, sort of December. Um, um, this, we we basically sort of used the Margent Farm materials um, as... as you basically created from hemp, is that correct? It's all hemp, yeah. So the, they make um, building materials out of it. Um, so if you, if you mix it with... P- 
PLA, which is poly something. So we wanted to try and make something together. And the big problem is that hemp is not allowed to be produced in this country. <laughs> oh, there's no... And um, so, in fact, we use Chinese hemp, which is, I don't think, unreasonable because that's where it originates, in fact. Um, but um, so it, the story was more really to draw, draw attention to the fact that the government is still thinks it's a, a more about a drug than it is about a, a, any other thing. So and what products did you make? Oh, we made a, a two bags. Um, three bags maybe yeah three bags a hold all a backpack and a sort of crossbody thing um, but it's it, yeah it, I mean it is an amazing material but um, you know it's it's good for the soil it's good for the atmosphere it doesn't use that much water it's processing is economical and non harmful Um and it can be made very fine. I mean, the, you know, the expectation of hemp fabric is that it's sacking, really. Um, but um, it, the, more is coming, more and more is, is happening with hemp. So I understand that the hemp story is going to lead into the upcoming autumn winter 22 teddy bear collection. <laughs> I don't know who named it teddy bear collection because that, that, that was new to me. But, <laughs> um, but it is a fabric which is made by that, you know, the famous German teddy bear company, Stiefer. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, the pile is hemp. It's on a cotton base, but it's, so it, it does look, it's very cute. And it is, it, it is genuine teddy bear fabric, I suppose. Although they make other fabrics, which I don't know whether they make teddy bears out of that. So there'll be bags. There's a bag, there's a hat, and there's a scarf with pockets in it. I think it's already made, actually. When's autumn winter going to start? We've, yeah, it's, it's it's in it's in the warehouse already. Yeah. And what was the waste you want line? Okay, so um, that's something that we've been um, looking at. I think we we've just more or less. I think we've been doing it a little bit before, but not really talked about it. But we've this season we're talking about it. So it's um, um, you know when when you make some bags or something you've got the red leather you've got the green leather you've got then then you don't use the leather the yellow because it's too many colorways or something like that so we might have five skins of that color or you might have five meters of something left on the end of a thing so it's sort of looking at um ends of lines and things and putting them to you know seeing how can we make those relevant to this season's collection and um it, it's got a certain freedom to it, actually. It's, I really like it. So um, I think I don't know how long it's going to take us to run out of all the scraps that we might have. That's the only thing. So I'm going to cast around for collaborators on that because there must be people who who've got the waste that we want. Yeah, so I guess you've always had quite a sustainable ethic, haven't you? Well, everything we do lasts forever. I mean, I, I mean, if ever I'm in the shop, people come in. And they might be as old as me and they might say, I'm still wet or I would be still wearing it if I could fit into it or, you know, I've still got it and it still looks great and or my daughter's still wearing it or my, you know, this sort of stuff. It just, it doesn't 
it doesn't really date. Listen, Ali, it's been wonderful uh, talking to you today and, and um, so interesting. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> really? <laughs> I feel like I must have bored you stupid. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Industry Doc Fashions In Conversation podcast. If ever you want to be there in person, visit our website at theindustry.fashion and sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know about future events. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our partners, Klarna. Keep an eye out for our next episode.